0: We have heard from so many of you who are anxious about what to expect in your career as a physician assistant. In today's episode, we are going to give you a real-life overview of what to expect during the first five years of practicing as a PA. There is a lot to cover, so we had to split it up into two episodes. Today's episode will talk about the first two years, and next week's episode will talk about years three through five. So let's just dive right in. Welcome to your PA mentor podcast.
1: I'm Sam Ming your host and fellow PA, and I'm here to help you navigate your way to a fulfilling PA career. At 26 years old, I landed my dream job as a brand new graduate right out of PA school without even realizing it, all because I had an incredible mentor who guided me through my first year as a clinician. My mentor completely changed my life and how I practice medicine. He didn't just teach me clinical medicine. He taught me how to love the art of medicine, how to develop work-life balance, how to avoid burnout, and most importantly, how to truly love and continue to love my profession. Because of him, I am the confident PA that I am today. And that is why I have made it my mission to help PA students and new grads navigate through the PA profession with advice, strategy, and tools to find your way to a fulfilling career as a PA. And with that said, my friends, it is now time to dive into today's episode. Hi Erin. Hi Sam. We've been hearing from new grad PAs that are so anxious about all the uncertainty of starting practice during the middle of a pandemic.
0: And a lot of anxiety about whether or not they are truly prepared to start practicing. And guess what? It is totally normal. A hundred percent pandemic or not. Feeling like you are out of your league and in way over your head is a completely accurate feeling when you first become a PA. Yes. I remember my first day seeing patients in my first job and just thinking, are they sure that they're really okay with me seeing patients? (laughs) Yeah, I remember that feeling. I was like, dude, I just graduated.
1: I have no idea what I'm doing.
0: Yeah, and that feeling doesn't go away overnight. Feeling new and inexperienced, can be daunting, but it really does improve over time. You start seeing patients, you settle into your new routine, and the fear and anxiety is replaced with excitement. You'll get more confident, but it's also still completely normal to feel stressed out and overwhelmed and to even cry a lot. I cried because I was frustrated, tired, sad, angry, literally the entire cornucopia of emotions. Um, Aaron's a crier. I'm not. I don't cry, but I did go true. down a, a crier. Yeah, a terrible,
1: depressing downward spiral, and it was not a good look for me. No matter how much you love your job or how wonderful your supervising physician is, there are bound to be bumps along the road, and they can take a toll on you. The reality is, you can have the perfect job, but you still have to navigate through our healthcare system, which is far from perfect. So let's talk about what to expect during your first year of practice and how to deal with ups and the downs. And there's a lot of them. But first, let's talk about imposter syndrome because it is very, very
0: real. You guys, it is so real. And it's not just like feeling nervous and scared about being a PA. It's more intense than that kind of baseline fear that we all have. It's actually feeling like you don't deserve to be in the position that you're in and that people are going to find out that you're a fraud. Just living that experience day in and day out is so overwhelming and so stressful to constantly feel like you're not smart enough and you're not good enough. And I also just want to acknowledge that while imposter syndrome can affect anybody, it is culturally driven by systemic racism and misogyny, okay? Everybody, every woman, every minority who has ever been gaslighted about being a diversity hire or being like the token female on the team, that's real. So the feeling that you're having of being an imposter isn't just in your imagination. We have been indoctrinated our entire life to believe that we are not good enough, and we've had to work harder and fight harder to get where we are compared to some of our colleagues. And yet, here we are. It's true. Keep that in mind. Don't let it get to you. It's true. That feeling
1: doesn't go away overnight. I still have imposter syndrome and I've been in practice for eight years, but you learn to manage it better. For starters, you remind yourself of all your accomplishments. Look at how far you've come. You spent hours studying, you completed a tough clinical year, and you met all the requirements to pass PA school and you passed the pants. These are not things that other people did for you. You did it yourself and you have a ton of student loans to prove it. <laughs>
0: right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can't really claim imposter syndrome as a reason not to like pay back your student loans, right? <laughs> okay. So, I mean, as you're paying that shit, like Forever. you own it, okay? Uh-huh. So, make sure that you use encouraging language with yourself and with others around you. Learn to accept how to take thank yous and congratulations from your coworkers and colleagues it is okay to be pleased that you did a good job. And it's definitely more than okay to accept recognition for a job well done from people who know, Mm -hmm. okay? And then the other word of advice is just to be kind to yourself when you make a mistake. You wouldn't scream at someone else for a mistake or error. So why would you do that to yourself? If you would scream at someone for making a mistake, you don't have imposter syndrome. You're just an asshole. (laughs) Yes, I agree. And Being a PA is hard work, and our
1: education and training qualifies us to be in practice. But that doesn't mean you stop studying just because you're done with school. Remember, you are expected to do a job of a physician, but in less learning time. When you graduate PA school, you're pretty much like a third-year or fourth-year medical student, and your first five years is pretty much your residency. And medicine moves fast. And what you learned five years ago is obsolete today. So you absolutely have to continue to spend at least an hour a day reading or studying. You have to look up a ton of shit on your own. And that takes time. Keep a list of things you need to look up at the end
0: of the day every day. My personal favorite is having to look up the same thing over (laughs) and over. I know. I cannot even begin to tell you how often I have to look up the guidelines for window screen for AAA. To this day, because even though it might not change much year to year, I still always want to be certain that I'm following current guidelines. And things really do change so often that you have to stay ahead of it. You know, they send out a lot of emails about like, oh, new guidelines, new this, new that. But do you really sit down and go and read through the new guidelines and memorize them every single time? Mostly. I mean, yeah, you read them, but you don't memorize them. That's why they're listed. That's why they're published, so you can refer back to them. You can't memorize all the new different guidelines that come out every year. Mm -hmm. You have to go back and check, and that is okay. So make sure that you have taken the time to research and look up the answers for yourself before you go to your SP with questions. Yes. And to this
1: day, I still have to look up a ton of shit. When I switched to urgent care, I literally had to look up ortho shit every single day because I don't remember all the fracture names and all the types of splints. And in the last three years alone, all the diabetes guidelines and medications have changed. I used to be so fluid in diabetes because I practiced primary care for five years. And now I'm like, oh, I don't even know what this medication is. (laughs) I'm like, what the fuck is this? I have to there's look it up. There's
0: so many new ones. Every there single, are so like many every many other day, meds. there's a new
1: diabetes medication. And I'm just now I'm yeah. three years out of primary care and I don't even know the guidelines. In urgent care recently, yeah. there's a big change in the Timmy score. Now we switch from Timmy to the heart score to determine the mortality rate in patients with unstable angina and, and STEMI. So you have to get used to constantly checking for updated information and verifying that what you're still doing is in line with current guidelines. We are obviously not trying to discourage you from reaching out to your supervising physician if you're still confused. Because obviously, patient safety is always the top priority. But you're out of school now, and your supervising physician is not being paid to teach you medicine. You are actually being paid to practice medicine. So make sure you're doing that heavy lifting and continuing your education and not just relying on your supervising physician for everything.
0: Exactly. Not to mention that this will help to build your confidence and help reinforce your work ethic. So during your first year, you're not just learning how to practice medicine. You're also learning how to work in an office with coworkers, colleagues, and the ever present administration. And (laughs) the personal dynamics of medical offices, let's just say they can be challenging Mm -hmm. at times. Okay. So figuring out where you fit in can take Time. So get to know the people in your clinic, figure out how they interact with each other, and figure out what their work relationships look like. The one thing I literally cannot stress enough is stay out of gossip at all costs. Do not get involved. It's totally normal to want to reach out to coworkers to supplement your social circle. I mean, you're spending a lot of your day with them, but don't make them your only social circle. You have to keep your work life and your personal life separate. Sam, most of your coworkers don't even know you have a podcast, right? That's right. I do
1: not discuss my blog life with my coworker. And it's not that I'm embarrassed about it. I just don't talk about it. I complain about my kids, how much I hate them, how much they hate me. And that's pretty much it. I do not air out my family drama with my coworkers. And there are days where it's difficult. As a young provider, I find that I have a lot of MAs and nurses who are young, like me, and they often view me as the cool provider, and they want to confide in me in their one-night stands and their Tinder dates. I try my hardest to stay away from those type of conversations. I smile, I nod, and I just don't engage. And I definitely do not hang out with my coworkers outside of work, unless it's a big work party or a social gathering where everyone is invited. Here's a little story to tell you. I once yeah. made a mistake of agreeing to treat okay. an MA of mine for a gonorrhea and chlamydia he had. He gave me this big sob story. I was like, sure, I'll do it. He came back to me a few more times over the next six months and I ended up treating him for syphilis and then HIV. I mean, come on. I was an oh, idiot. Gosh. I know. I wish I had stricter That's boundaries tough. with him, but and told him to go to see his primary care, but I didn't, you know, I was trying to be the nice guy and I, didn't even want to know his full medical history, you know. It sucks. I don't want to be his primary care provider, especially when he's my colleague. And that's a really yeah. difficult and awkward situation, you know, to maintain our professional relationship after that. And I, don't know, I yeah, cross a line.
0: Yeah, that's heavy. And, you know, a lot of the times you don't even know that you're crossing a line until, until you look late, back. Yeah. And you're like, shit, oh, shit. I shouldn't <laughs> have done that. Yeah, that was, that was a bad idea. Yeah. I am definitely guilty of... Not the same, but similar, just like crossing those lines and not really recognizing at the time. I mean, it's great to have friendly relationships with your coworkers and colleagues, right? But having your personal life and your work life so closely intertwined makes it really difficult to develop a healthy work-life balance. And since we know that maintaining a healthy work-life balance is essential to avoiding burnout, it means that you have to establish clear boundaries with your work friends. Especially now with the stress of working in medicine during this pandemic. If all your time away from work is spent with people from work or talking about work, mm-hmm. when do you have time to focus on the other parts of yourself? When do you have time to decompress and get away from that? And really, that is our entire mission with this podcast and literally the reason for everything we are doing. We want you to succeed as PAs and we want you to avoid burnout and that doesn't mean that you can't be close friends with people from work. I used to live with a PA that I worked with, like for almost a year, and I helped her move. And we're still like close friends to this day. She's one of my closest friends. But we really had to find the balance and respect boundaries of each other when we lived together. And we had to keep our work life and our personal life separate. I don't even think that most people knew that we were roommates. Yeah, that's good. We didn't carpool together. We didn't talk about home life when we were at work. And then we really tried to avoid talking about work when we were at home. That's good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know what else can lead to burnout? Letting charting take over your life. Oh,
1: my God. How much do you hate charting? I I can't stand it. So much. I hate it. Yeah. Your EMR can either help you or hurt you, so invest early on in learning how to make your EMR as efficient as possible. Take the time to learn Dragon. Take the time to figure out how to build templates, use macros, and dot phrases. If you have to stay late charting for the first six months or even a year to get a handle on it, that is fine because you'll thank yourself later. If you have to fight with your EMR, you're going to be spending so much time trying to constantly catch up on your charting, and nobody wants to do that. Here's a pro tip for you. I know you think you know how to use your EMR, and I guarantee you, you probably don't. You're not maximizing all of its function. Call your EMR representative and have them send somebody to teach you all the little inside tricks to maximize what the EMR can do for you.
0: Yeah, so this was definitely me my first year. I spent hours hours after work charting and trying to figure out what to say in my documentation. I had no idea how to set things up. My supervising physician didn't share any of his templates or dot phrases with me. I literally was starting from scratch. I didn't even know what a dot phrase was until I left that job and went to a place that had scribes. I was really disappointed when I found out how much time I could have saved if I had known what the hell I was doing.
1: Oh, 100%. When I was in San Francisco, I used the same EMR that I have used here in Las Vegas. Once I got to Las Vegas, we had this onboarding training and I had a rep come in and show me how to use the EMR better. And it changed my life. I had no idea what sort of things it could do for me until she told me. It was literally the same EMR. I've been using that EMR in San Francisco for three years, guys. Three fucking years. And I had no (laughs) idea what I was doing. (laughs) <laughs> and suddenly, like, she told oh. me, here, Sam, click this button twice and boom, you have all these things done. I'm like, what? What? Oh, my God. Everything is painful. Here? And I was just so angry at myself. I just totally wasted my entire three years of
0: my life charting. Yeah. Charting. <laughs> yeah. Fuck. Anyways, yeah. So it might be a little much at the beginning, but you really, really owe it to yourself to be a good and efficient user of your EMR. Building templates and order sets will also help you out when you're trying to figure out what diagnostics to order, which lab panel, or which scan is going to give you the most bang for your buck. Remember when we talked about practicing defensive medicine? Mm -hmm. This is where it starts not being sure about what you're looking for, and being afraid of missing something. So instead, you look for everything. Order sets can help direct your differential and reassure yourself about what tests to order.
1: And knowing what types of tests to order is going to save you a ton of time in the long run. There's nothing more annoying than ordering something that the insurance won't cover, and then you have to go back a step to clear the diagnostic hurdle.
0: Yeah. And honestly, no matter what type of medicine you get into, there will always be administrative policies you disagree with. Like death and taxes, it is a certainty. And the reason for most disagreements with administrators and insurance companies boils down to money. Cash money. Remember, cash money, baby. Money talks. (laughs) In medical institutions, they might say they're not for profit, but that doesn't mean they're not trying to make a profit. It just means they're not trying to make a profit for investors. They're still trying to make money for the company. And federal and state government insurance companies have a fiduciary responsibility to taxpayers to keep costs in check as much as possible. So there really is no getting away from the fact that money and medicine are inextricably linked. And it can make your job
1: feel like an administrative nightmare where you can not do what you feel
0: is right for your patients. Right. And I really struggled with this when I first started out. I would get so frustrated. I would order a medication for a patient and then the pharmacy would call me and say that I had to get a pre-authorization or I had to order something Mm -hmm. else first. And I was just like, who are you to try to tell me what to do? Like, I'm the provider here but then I realized, you know what? This other medication is actually a lot cheaper and works just fine. Most of my patients would do great, and for the few that didn't, I was able to move them along quicker in the treatment plan by showing their insurance company that they had already failed a first-line agent before I requested the second step. So, There's a process and I definitely still get grouchy with pharmacy, but I don't take it personally. And I certainly don't feel like my patients are suffering because of having to try a different medication first. Yeah. The other frustration is not being able to get all the diagnostics you want the first time through. When I
1: first started out, I wanted to get an MRI for every neck pain that walked through the door. But as I got better at diagnostic and imaging and managing acute injuries, I had fewer patients coming back with chronic pain who actually needed an MRI. There's also a huge learning curve when it comes to ordering diagnostic tests. You may want to order a CT abdomen, but do you order it with contrast or without? With PO or only IV? And what about that leg MRI? With or without contrast? If you order a humerus x-ray, does it cover the elbow or do you have to order two separate tests? Make sure you're paying attention to what it is that you're trying to find.
0: And remember, you can ask the radiologist and even the radiology techs to help you out with what to order. All the time. I still do it all the time. If you have a patient with a high creatinine, your x-ray tech might call and say, hey, we can't give this patient contrast because their creatinine level Mm -hmm. is too high. They do this all the time. They are your best resources. So if you have a question about what to order call them and say, hey, I'm trying to look for this. What do you think is best? Or ask to talk to the radiologist if it's a very specific scan, like an MRI scan. Remember, keeping costs down isn't just good for your patients. It's really good for the entire medical system. Your patient doesn't want to go bankrupt just because you thought you needed to do a million dollar workup on their torticollis to make sure it wasn't meningitis. Yes. And here's the funny thing about
1: radiology. They are super nice. I used to call the radiologists all the time. And I said, hey, I'm a uh, new PA. Speak for yourself. Really? I think they're super nice. Yeah. <laughs>
0: sometimes but some are like total assholes oh okay
1: well i've got a few really great ones oh you're right i do know which ones are good and so when i talk to them i'm like hey i'm sam i'm a new <laughs> talk to the nice one yeah and then i ask a ton of questions and they'll spend time teaching me stuff so that's an awesome resource to have right there and it's literally just a phone call away i mean obviously it slows you down a little bit but still use your resources in the first right. few years
0: Yeah. And, you know, when you are getting those phone calls from pharmacy Mm -hmm. about the medications, talk to them. Like, figure out why. Okay, like, hey, why is the insurance company not ordering this? Why do I need to try this first? They will be able to talk you through it and help you make sense of it all. So don't be mad at the system. Figure out why the system is doing what it's asking you to do.
1: And the pharmacy is your best friend. The pharmacist knows a lot of shit, you guys. They do.
0: They're super smarties.
1: I call all the time about compounding medication, you know, about, like, cancer drugs I don't know about. They're always there and give me a lot of advice. So I use them a lot. Yeah, And if you really think you're ordering a full panel of labs is necessary, then by all means, don't hold back. But if you're just nervous about missing something and don't really know how to narrow in your focus, you're doing a disservice to your patient. If you're ordering a full panel of labs just
0: because the patient's mother is demanding it, that's a whole different story. As you get more comfortable managing the medical side of things, you'll discover that how you manage your patients is just as important. So being a good medical provider is about more than just making a diagnosis and having a treatment plan. It's also about managing your patient's expectations about their prognosis.
1: And it can be so intimidating to tell up demanding patients that a prescription or referral just isn't necessary. It's easier to give them the referral or that test or write that damn antibiotic prescription but that is exactly the type of shit that leads to increased medical costs and antibiotic resistance.
0: Right, so instead go over the plan with your patient. Tell your 10th patient of the day why they don't need a PAC for a sore throat. Let them know that their symptoms that they're having are normal and that they're expected. And then talk to them about what the healing process for their complaint looks like. Say, hey, we think in about two weeks you should be feeling much better. Let them know what to expect and what things to watch out for. Let them know that the plan can change if their symptoms change. The other thing that I like to do is sort of give patients a differential of what I think is probably going on and then walk them through why it's reasonable to do lower level management and kind of keep an eye on things before we start ordering these great big workups. Letting them know that you're also thinking about the bad stuff and avoiding minimizing their concerns will help your patients to understand why you're doing what you're doing. Yes. And we are going to talk all
1: about managing the patient's expectations in another full episode. That's a deep dive. Yeah. Remember, the main reason patients complain or sue is not because of a bad outcome. It's because they didn't feel heard. So listen to your patients and help them manage the expectations of their complaints and the treatment course.
0: Whenever I have to discuss a difficult diagnosis with a patient, the first thing that they always ask is, what is going to happen? Literally, oh, sir, I'm so sorry. It looks like your scan is concerning for cancer oh my gosh, what does this mean? How long do I have? What do I have? What's going to happen? They have no idea. So they have a ton of questions. It is your obligation as their provider to be able to, if not at least answer all their questions, at least help them to know that you're going to get them to the right place where they can help them with some of those questions. You really just have to be stable for them and you have to be able to have those hard conversations. hmm If you give
1: someone a diagnosis, be prepared to give realistic expectations for their prognosis. I see so many patients with COVID who come back. After five days, because they still have symptoms, and it's because their providers didn't tell them what to expect. that it's normal to have symptoms for up to two weeks or
0: even longer or even longer, you're right.
1: Yeah, you have to tell the patients what the plan is if their symptoms gets worse. And guess what? It is not coming back to the urgent care to see me. <laughs> Go to the right. ER. If you can't breathe, I can't help you and I don't want to delay their medical management. It is those crucial moments that are wasted by having to transfer a patient from my urgent care to the ER. So let them know in advance what to expect.
0: Right. We cannot say it enough. Managing patient expectations, dealing with patients and their families, it is completely normal to be mentally drained by that. So draining. You're dealing with mental health, family problems, work issues, and then maybe some actual medical problems. And sometimes patients just want to talk. They just want someone to listen to them and know that someone cares. A lot of our patients just need a connection. And sometimes the only person who fills that role is their medical provider. Yes, especially in the elderly patients. They just come
1: in because they're lonely and have nobody else to lean on to. Right. So let's talk about work-life balance. It is important to stay checked in with your own mental health and understand how your work is affecting you. You can't be everything for everybody. And it is tempting during your first year to feel guilty about taking a break or using your time off during for vacation.
0: After all, you barely just started and you're already asking for a break. Right. But a better way to think of it is you can't help other people if you're a dumpster fire. Okay. Mm -hmm. So take care of your needs. Stay active with your hobbies and your interests keep up your exercise program, stay checked in with friends, you being more mentally healthy is going to be able to help you handle the emotional stress that comes with our work. Yeah. And I mean, Aaron and I, we have this podcast because
1: this is something that we're doing that is outside of medicine, you know, and it's, it's a hobby, right, Aaron? Hmm. Mm. Okay. Well,
0: Aaron doesn't think it's a hobby, but okay. <laughs> it's not a hobby. It's a job. It's, it's work. work. Okay.
1: But, Again, you guys, be kind to yourself. You have signed up for a great job that comes with a lot of demand. Make sure you pace yourself. At the end of your second year, you're going to be able to handle a lot of your patients' medical issues and expectations by yourself. You'll also be better at charting and getting out of work on time. That sets you up perfectly for the next three to five years of practice as a PA. And we'll talk all about your three to five in the next episode.
0: Right. We have a lot to say about that. So make sure that you tune in. And as always, make sure to check out our website, yourpamentor.com, uh, where you can listen to previous episodes of the podcast. And to make sure you're the first to hear new episodes, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and comment on our podcast wherever you download your podcast, And also on YouTube. It's Your PA Mentor. Oh, yeah. Don't forget about YouTube. And if you haven't already. Sammy's favorite. <laughs> Shut up. And if you haven't already,
1: uh, there's also a Facebook group. We're going to start to try to be more active on that very soon. We're working on it.
0: It's already started. It's just like. It's kind of slow. Know, We're working it's on just it. kind of building up steam. Yeah. Like, hey, it'll get there. So join us and Don't come network with time, us. Baby. Yeah. time, baby.
1: Join us, come network with us, and let's build this community. That's right. Okay. We'll right. See
0: you next week, guys. Bye. Bye.